Um, for our scripture reading today, we, um, it is found in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, and can be found on page 980 of the Bible in your pew. And if you do not have a Bible, um, we hope that you'll take this one as a gift from us. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for the Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ with envy and rivalry, while others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalyn. Well, good morning uh, to each of you. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to see each one of your faces here this morning, whether you're here in the room with us or you're joining us online. We're so glad that you are here today, uh, especially if this is maybe your first time uh, at Christ Community. We're especially glad that you've joined us today, or maybe this is your first Sunday back after a really long time. And if that's you, we're so glad that you're here Uh, with us as well. If you are joining us online, we would love to know that you are here with us, and there's a number on your screen that you can text and just let us know that you're here and uh, joining us in this way, and there's even a place there where we can uh, pray for you and those kinds of things. So we'd love for you to do that. And as we look into this passage that Anna read for us, I'd love to pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in there. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the hope of joy And whether we are coming in this morning, bursting with joy, feeling that strongly, or maybe feeling like just joy is not a possibility for us anymore, wherever we find ourselves today, I pray that your spirit would apply the truth, the comfort, the hope of this passage to each of us right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been mentioning a couple times here this morning, we are in a brand new teaching series in the book of Philippians. We started that last week. Pastor Taylor kicked us off, and uh, we're in the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders in the church, early followers of Jesus. And this is one of the most joy-filled books in the Bible. Joy is the main theme of this book. And what we're going to be looking at in this series is just returning to joy as kind of Life begins to now return to kind of some sense of normal, whatever that means. As life is returning to normal, we want to also return to joy. But this past year has confronted us with one of the biggest obstacles to finding joy, and that is suffering. Now, not all of us last year lost someone close to us as a result of the pandemic. Not all of us lost a job. But if you lived through 2020, you experienced suffering in some way. 
Even if it was just the suffering of, of not being able to gather with family and friends over holidays or missing out on memories. I mean, w- whether you had to postpone a wedding or you had a baby and you didn't get to introduce them to, to family in person till later on. All of us in this past year have experienced some kind of suffering. Now, of course, the suffering that we've walked through is not unique to us. People have been suffering in, uh, in humanity for a long time. And certainly even the suffering that we went through this past year is not the most extreme suffering that people have experienced in life. But there is something unique about this moment of suffering, not just 2020, but our cultural moment in experience suffering. What is it? Well, it's simply this, that at most times and in most places, cultures have given people a framework for finding meaning in suffering. For finding a sense of purpose in the midst of that. But our culture, kind of in the late modern, kind of secular West, is really ill-equipped to find meaning, to find purpose in suffering. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, in his really great book on suffering, points this out really well. Take a look at this. Says, Nothing is more important than to learn how to maintain a life of purpose amidst, in the midst of painful adversity. And then he continues, he says this, Yet it is often noted that our own contemporary secular Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history of doing so. That our culture, and we don't have time to go into all of the reasons why in this moment, but that our culture is particularly bad at providing meaning in the midst of suffering. Which means then that for us who live in this cultural moment, that suffering is perhaps the greatest threat to joy and experiencing a continuous life of joy that we can face. But what if I were to tell you this morning that it didn't have to be that way? That there's actually a kind of joy that not even suffering can kill. There's a kind of joy that not even suffering can kill. Now, you might rightly be skeptical of me saying that if you recognize that, yeah, Bill, I look at you and I don't know that you've suffered a whole lot in your life. How can you how can you say that? And again, if I were the one making that claim, I think that skepticism would be justified. But actually, it's the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Philippians who's making that claim, and he was someone who experienced uh, a profound suffering in his life, and yet also managed to encounter a regularity of joy in his life. And his point for us in this passage this morning is that there is a kind of joy that even suffering can't kill. There's a kind of joy that even suffering can't kill. Now, before we go any further, though, in this message and really unpack, what is that kind of joy? How do you find that kind of uh, suffering-resistant joy? I just want to pause and note one important thing, actually really two important things here. First of all, looking around this room, I know many of your stories well. And some of you have suffered, are suffering deeply. And, And in ways that I never have. And so I just want to say right here at the beginning, I feel the vulnerability of that, of someone speaking about suffering, about finding joy in suffering, knowing that I, I, the metaphor that came to my mind was it's a bit, I feel a bit like a backseat driver in that. And actually someone who has not, not even really learned to drive the car of suffering that well. So I just, I just want to acknowledge that this morning. The second important thing is if you find yourself in the midst of suffering right now, that you walked in this morning and you were in the middle of it, <clears throat> that probably the last thing you need is 
a, a message about finding joy and suffering. What you, you probably need most is someone who is just going to sit patiently with you, to be with you, to cry with you, to pray over you, to spend time with you. And, and I hope that as a caring family, uh, as a church, that we can do that together for one another in those times, in those places, that we can mourn with those who mourn, even as we rejoice with those who rejoice. And so I, I just want to, again, name both of those things that, again, if you find yourself in the middle of suffering, this, this message may be the last thing that you need this morning. You just need a hug and someone to sit and be with you. And hopefully we can be that for you. In fact, if you do find yourself in a place of, of especially persistent suffering, I really encourage you to look at K.J. Ramsey's book, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace uh, in the Midst of, of Suffering. And she's a it's a beautifully written book, as well as deeply theologically uh, rooted. She's a counselor. Um, if you find yourself or you have people in your life who are just in the middle of ongoing suffering, I'd highly recommend KJ's book. And really, here's the deal. You know, as people, there's really only two, in, in the kind of world that we live in, there's really only two kinds of people. People who are suffering right now and those who are preparing to suffer in the future. Now, without sounding too dark, though, that is kind of the reality, that because we live in a world that is broken and doesn't work like it's supposed to, oftentimes it's the case. Either we find we're ourselves dealing with an amount of suffering, or we know that at some point in the future, we are going to deal with suffering. And this is really a message for the second kind of person who is not maybe in the midst of intense suffering now, but is preparing to suffer in the future. So again, please be patient if you find yourself in a moment of suffering, if these things ring hollow. Just be patient with us. And the reason we can say that and ask that of you is that the person we're going to look at today in Paul did suffer a lot. And Jesus suffered greatly. And, and maybe I can't relate, maybe others can't relate, but he can. He knows what it is to suffer, and he's with you. So as we then go on in this, we're not leaving behind. In fact, we just spent uh, a whole first part of the year looking at the Gospel of Luke and Jesus introducing this kingdom, and which, you know, suffering is a part. He talks about that regularly. And so what Paul is writing here, we're not leaving the idea of the kingdom behind. We're not leaving the idea of Jesus behind now. But rather, Paul is writing to a church and telling them, this is how you live out the kingdom life in sort of the everyday, ordinary realities that you face in the midst of this. And I think the metaphor I want to introduce for us this morning that will kind of help us keep track of, of what Paul is saying in this passage is the metaphor of a skyscraper. So recently, my oldest uh, daughter has been really into, I mean, she's really into science, wants to understand how things work. And recently, we've been really into skyscrapers. She's wanted to learn, you know, how do, how do they work? How are they built? How do they stand? How do they withstand earthquakes and hurricanes and winds and all that? So we've been going deep in, learning, reading lots of books about skyscrapers. And her favorite skyscraper right now is the Burj Khalifa, which is currently the tallest building in the world. And uh, it's in Dubai. Uh, it's the tallest building in the world. And again, today I want to just use this metaphor of a skyscraper. How do we build sort of a towering joy that not even suffering can kill? And there's really three key elements that you need for a good skyscraper as well as for a life that has a kind of a suffering-resistant joy. And the first thing you need is a foundation of purpose. Right? Every good skyscraper that's going to stand up over the long haul has to have a good foundation. And the first thing you see here in this text is you have to have a foundation of purpose if you want a, a kind of joy that even suffering can't kill. 
a foundation that's rooted in Jesus, rooted in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his finished work. You have to have a foundation that's rooted in that, a purpose that is rooted in that. Otherwise, it's not going to last. And Paul says here, he points this out, that he has this. If you look in verses 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is saying, so he's writing this. Most scholars think he's actually in prison as he's composing this letter, getting it ready to go back to the Philippians. He's in the midst of profound suffering. And yet he names that there is a purpose. The gospel is advancing. This is for Christ that this is happening. Jesus is being made known. And therefore, Paul can have joy because that's his purpose. His purpose is being fulfilled. Jesus is being made known. Now, this was not always the case for Paul, though. And maybe you don't know a lot about Paul's story. His name used to be Saul. And when he first encountered the Jesus movement, he tried to put a stop to it, violently so. We have a a moment where he is actually watching others kill Jesus' followers, and he's standing there approving of it. And then he's on his way. Later on, we get a story of him. He's on his way to go arrest Christians to try to stop the Jesus movement from spreading. And he has this encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to the city of Damascus. And his life is completely transformed. And he goes from trying to stop the Jesus movement to actually becoming one of the key people who is spreading it throughout the Roman Empire. And he goes to the city of Philippi, which is a Roman colony in the area of Macedonia. And he plants a church there. He starts a new community, this new group of Jesus followers. But people in the city kind of push back on him and it gets to the point where he is actually thrown in prison in Philippi. And he's there with some other followers of Jesus and they're in this prison and they're singing and they are praising God and they're praying. And in the middle of the night, there's this earthquake and the doors to the prison, they open up and the guard who's watching over that prison is immediately terrified because he thinks the the doors are open, it's the middle of the night, everybody's going to run away and that in that moment for him meant he was going to face death. He's actually about to take his own life rather than be executed. And and Paul stops and says, no, we're all still here. And right there in that moment, this Philippian jailer and his whole family, they become Christians. And this new church is started. And so he's a part of this church that, that Paul is writing this letter to. There's this incredible sense of purpose. Because Paul knows that if he, he can follow Jesus, he can proclaim Jesus, he can seek the glory of Jesus, and he can all those things, whether he's in prison or out of prison. And so he has this sense of purpose. Paul knew his purpose. The Austrian neuroscientist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl wrote a very uh, well-known book called Man's Search for Meaning. And as someone who endured uh, being in a concentration camp, help others endure in that concentration camp setting, Frankel writes these words, reflecting on how do you help someone in that place. This is what he writes. He says, as we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the, in the camp, in the concentration camp, had to first succeed in showing him some future goal. There had to be a future goal. Nietzsche's words... He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how could be the guiding motto. 
Frankel says that was so key to helping people survive this experience of the camps, that when we would gather someone around, we would say, you have to have a purpose. You have to have a hope for the future. And if you have that, why? You can endure almost any how. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll be easy. It doesn't mean that it won't be incredibly painful. It doesn't mean that it won't be times when you're tempted to despair. But if you have the why, you can endure almost any how. Winifred Gallagher, who's a science writer, she writes lots of science articles and books. Um, I don't know much about her faith tradition. I don't think she's writing from a Christian perspective. But she discovered something similar when she was diagnosed with cancer. And she immediately went home and was kind of overwhelmed with anxiety and fear and was kind of being crushed by that. And realized when she was focusing on those macro circumstances of this cancer diagnosis that, that she was pretty crippled and defeated. But when she began to say, no, I kind of focus on what is my purpose each day? If I get up and I go for this walk in the morning and enjoy the nature around me, if I look forward to dinner and an evening with friends, to have drinks with friends, she talked about she had this kind of ritual of a walk in the morning and, and drinks with a friend at the end of each day, that if she focused on those little points of purpose each day, rather than the macro circumstances of the suffering of the cancer, that she was able to endure much better. And that's true for all of us. Right? I mean, she's discovering what, what the scriptures have said for a long time. That our joy, especially an enduring joy, cannot come from focusing on macro circumstances. Maybe you're a high school student and you're like, if only I can get to that moment when I can move out of my parents' house and, and move out to the dorms or, or get my own apartment, then I can find joy. Or, or maybe you're in a place of, of looking for a home or longing for a child or waiting for a next job or, or you're in a place of suffering and, and you're, you're waiting for healing and you think if only that circumstance in my life would change, then I could experience joy again. You're always going to be disappointed because joy that's persistent can't be rooted in circumstance. It has to be rooted in the sense of purpose. But that by itself is not enough. If you only have that foundation of purpose, which is vital, you're not going to get anywhere without it, but you, you will not continue to have a joy that suffering can't kill unless you also have the superstructure of relationship as well. You have to have the superstructure of relationships. The only way a building can stand is the only way joy can endure. In Philippians, this letter is a highly relational letter. Scholars point out there's lots of lots of really highly emotive language. There's lots of uh, just relationships. There's lots of names used in this letter. That this letter is all about relationships. And in this type of setting, then these relationships are so key. And Paul's actually counting on those relationships for his joy. He points out in verses 18 and 19 that he's actually looking to their prayers to support him and his joy. He says, yes, I will rejoice at the end of verse 18. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. His joy is linked to their prayers for him. And this was so key because you could have... Maybe the Philippians would have gotten this report, this church, and heard that Paul's in prison again and thought, man, maybe he's, maybe God's not using him anymore. Maybe he did something wrong. That's why he's in prison and withdrawn from him. But no, they press in even more. They send this church member, Epaphroditus. We're going to learn about more later in the letter, but they send Epaphroditus with a gift, a financial gift to support uh, sending their friendship, their greetings to Paul in prison. They press in even more 
You see, joy is always relational. And it's not just Paul and Jesus, this kind of vertical relationship of joy, but also Paul and the Philippians, that those two are linked together, that because there's this relationship of joy and affection and love, that Paul can continue to have joy, even in this incredibly difficult circumstance. And Pastor Taylor last week, he introduced us to this definition of joy from the uh, neurologist and neurobiologist Alan Shore, who says that joy is someone who is glad to be with me. That really from a neurological standpoint, that the experience of joy is experiencing someone who is glad to be with me. You enjoying them, enjoying you. That's that's at the heart of joy. It's It's a deeply relational concept. Joy is not based in circumstances. It's based in relationship. And I mean, I can tell you this from my own story so clearly over this last year. Many of you asked me throughout this last year, Bill, like as a pastor, like how are you doing in the midst of all that's gone on in our world? Right? And there's been so many difficult circumstances. Obviously the pandemic, there's been racial unrest, a political season that was so contentious. People say, Bill, how are you doing in the midst of all this? And my answer is always the same. And it's two things. One, this is one of the most difficult circumstances, probably the most challenging circumstances to ever provide pastoral care and leadership that I've ever been in, hands down. And yet I've also experienced greater joy in my relationships this year than at any other time. And I remember it was about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, we had just celebrated Good Friday and Easter all locked down in our homes. We didn't have any services here. Our buildings weren't open. And it was, you know, Sunday or two after that or a Monday or two after that. And I was in a meeting with our other campus pastors and our senior pastors. And it was one of these many, many Zoom meetings that we were having to try to figure out the next set of problems and issues. And I don't know, at some point in that meeting, something made us all laugh. And I captured this screenshot of these smiling faces. I mean, this was in the heart of, and we were all locked down in our houses, right? This is not, we're not even the office on Zoom. We're all in our homes, in our bedrooms, making these decisions. It's so hard. The circumstances were terrible, but there was joy in those relationships because there's no one else I'd rather be doing that work with than those people. And the same is true with you as well as the congregation. We've been seeing some hard things together. And yet, there's so much joy each week, each Sunday, when I see new people who have come back. I haven't seen you in a year. Or we get on a phone call, we meet up for coffee, or to go on a walk. The sense of joy and connection. Joy that resists being crushed by suffering is rooted in relationships, not circumstances. It's rooted in relationships, not circumstances. But there's one more piece that we need if we're going to have a a kind of joy that even suffering can't kill. Yes, you need a a foundation of purpose. You've got to have a superstructure of relationships. But you also need a skylight of hope. A skylight of hope. One of my favorite skyscrapers, and I guess I do have favorite skyscrapers now, as Lucy and I have been reading these and studying these. One of my favorite ones is called the Gherkin, which is in London. And it's a really unique building, uh, just a kind of a unique structure in the London skyline. And one of the really cool things about this is not just its unique shape, but most skyscrapers, right, you, you have a, a, a concrete roof on the top, but the entire skylight, or is a skylight. The entire roof of the gherkin is is skylights, the light's coming in. And this is really key. 
Because for most of us who live in the modern kind of secular West, our worldview, our imagination of the world does not have a skylight that is open to transcendence. It's open to something beyond this life. It has kind of a concrete dome over it. This is that this life is all there is. Now, I think most of you gathered here would say, well, I, I believe that there's more to life, that there's a life after death, that kind of concept. But just even for all of us, because we live so deeply in a world where the default assumption, the cultural assumption, is that when you die, that that is the end, that there is no life after death, that there is no continuation, there is nothing more than material, that that even pervades our lives as well. And if that's the case, if whether you sort of state the belief that I, I believe that matter is all there is and when I die, that's just the end, whether you state that that's your belief or whether you just kind of functionally live your life that way because that's how our culture lives life, then suffering is an incredible vandalization and threat to the joy in your life. Because it's robbing from you the only window of time in which you will be able to experience joy and happiness and pleasure and comfort if you live in that kind of closed world. But Christians do believe that, that the world is open, that there is something, that there is a reality that actually is more real than the pew that you're sitting on, a spiritual reality, a coming kingdom of Jesus, that a new heavens and a new earth will come in which all your disappointments will be fulfilled, which all the sickness will be healed, in which all the sadness and tears will be wiped away. And there's a hope that comes in that. Because again, if, if I only get these 80 years, maybe 90, 100, if I'm, if I'm lucky, and then it's all over, then yeah, any point of suffering is just going to wipe out your joy. But if there is a hope that this is not all that there is, both now and for forever, then it completely transforms how you experience and process suffering. And, and that's Paul's hope. And you see it in verse 21 and following. Let me read this to you. Again, we said this here. It says, for me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? Paul says, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that I may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And Paul has this sense of deep joy that is coming. And, and he says, look, the worst case scenario for me is that I die and I go to spend the rest of forever with Jesus in a new heavens, in a new earth, restored in every possible way. Or I can stay here with you, but my worst case is Jesus. I get Jesus, Paul says. Now again, if you find yourself, you've walked in this morning, you are deeply in the midst of suffering. I'm aware that those are the kinds of statements that could ring hollow to you this morning. But if you are with Jesus, 
if you are with him, as hard as it is to embrace in the midst of suffering, Jesus knows and he is with you. And if you are with him, your path will not end in suffering. The pain, the disappointment, the loss, the mistakes, they will not have the final word in your life. They will not. They will not. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain. A couple weeks ago, I uh, was watching uh, something that I've been longing to watch for a while. Many of you know I'm a big Ken Burns fan. He's one of my heroes, the documentary filmmaker for PBS. And that was actually the Monday of the men's basketball, uh, college basketball championship game. Um, that was a big night for people who were into college basketball. Uh, it was also a big night for those of us who are into PBS and Ken Burns, because that was the night that Hemingway, uh, the latest film from Ken Burns, premiered. And so I was uh, rare that I kind of sit down and like, have, I'm going to watch something on the night that it comes out. But I was there watching Hemingway on that Monday night. And Hemingway's story is a fascinating one. He experienced actually a lot of suffering in his life, was injured in World War I, wrote a lot about death and suffering and hardship, and actually, tragically, his life ended in suicide because of that suffering. But he wrote in a letter once these words, and I think they're worth reading this morning in light of what we're saying here. He says, all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. All stories if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. And I think the Apostle Paul would say of Hemingway, you're both right and wrong. I think Paul would say Hemingway is right, that for every one of us, whether we want to or not, whether we're ready or not, all of us will face death at some point in our lives. That all of our stories do end up in death. But where I think Paul would say, is wrong is that death is not the end of the story, though. It's not the end of the story. It's actually only the beginning of a new story, of the story that we have longed to be a part of for forever. And Jesus, who is the truest storyteller of all, he defeated death, he defeated the grave, he came out of the grave, and he promises to all who are with him, who have given their allegiance and hope and trust and placed their faith in him, that this will not be their end either, but that life, not death, will be the final chapter of their story. Listen to what Jesus says to his followers as he is preparing to die on the cross. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And listen to this. This is Jesus' promise to you if you are with him. And no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Down to verse 33 now. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Friends, if you are with Jesus, there is a suffering, a kind of joy, rather, that not even suffering can kill. 
There is a kind of suffering that while it can assail you, it can never conquer the joy that you have with Jesus. All joy is relational. And Jesus is glad to be with you forever because he can never be taken away from you and you can never be taken away from him. You will have joy with him forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you've given us these promises of joy, even in the midst of suffering. And again, whether we are in the midst of suffering right now or preparing for us to suffer right now, I know that sometimes these things can ring hollow, but I pray that you would re-engage our imaginations afresh with a reality of your kingdom that is coming. Indeed, has already broken into the world. That Jesus has risen from the dead. And that because of that, we can have a joy that not even suffering can destroy. Would you help us in the midst of that, wherever we find ourselves this morning?